All right, loved ones, we've come to Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll read together responsively here question and answer 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that he is given also to me, so that through true faith he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. And now the scripture reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. This is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So far, the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it together tonight. We're looking at the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is what we find here. The Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. Now, when we hear uh, today as Christians about the day of Pentecost, we think of this event that is here reported for us in the book of Acts. But we should ask ourselves, what was the day of Pentecost for the Jewish people before this event? Uh, What was it to them? And when we look back into the Old Testament, we find that it was one of the three major annual festivals that the Jewish people were commanded by God to keep. It was called in the Old Testament the Feast of the Harvest or the Feast of the First Fruits. Uh, the Feast of Weeks as well in Deuteronomy. And so it was this celebration of the harvest of the first fruits. But it also happened 50 days after the Jewish festival of Passover. And Passover naturally was a celebration of what event? The Exodus event, right? When God brought his people out of Egypt. And for that reason, because it came 50 days after Passover, the festival had already become, in Jesus' day, associated with the giving of God's law to Israel at Mount Sinai. Because after Israel left 
Egypt through the Red Sea. They arrived at Mount Sinai about two months after crossing the Red Sea, where they received there the Ten Commandments of God. And so uh, the Jewish people had also celebrated not just the, the harvest of first fruits, but also the giving of God's law to them and their ancestors long before. Now, I want us to see the corresponding relationship between the giving of the law at Sinai and the giving here of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And first we consider that what is happening here is after a better exodus. So like the Israelites who received the law a couple months after their liberation out of Egypt, we find that here the outpouring of the Spirit occurred 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, which was the greater exodus event that God had promised. And uh, perhaps I've mentioned this before, you've heard it before, that on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of some of his closest disciples, he was there talking with Moses and Elijah and they were talking about, Luke says in chapter 9 of his gospel, his upcoming departure. And the Greek term that's used there is they were talking about his exodus, his exodus. And the Greek word exodus means way out, right? And so they were speaking of his upcoming death and resurrection, which is the new way of salvation that Christ has opened up for us, the way out of sin and death through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we find that this outpouring of the Spirit came after the better exodus for us. And also, it was a better gift that was given to God's people. For instead of the law that was written externally in stone, well, the Spirit came to write the law of God internally upon the hearts of his people. And Paul, the apostle, speaks of this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, where he's addressing Christians. And he says, You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifest that you are a letter of Christ written by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so this was actually part of God's promise of old, uh, that the promise that he would eventually establish this new covenant. And part of that new covenant was that God's law would not just be this external judge outside of them, showing them their sins and their faults, but rather the law would be written upon their hearts internally as a guide for them. And we see this in the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, which is then repeated in the New Testament in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. And I'll read that passage from Jeremiah. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of, their, out of, the, out of Egypt uh, by the hand, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach 
their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And so we find that that promise uh, in the Old Testament that God would make this new covenant and by his spirit write the law of God upon their hearts was being fulfilled there in the day of Pentecost. Now why, we can kind of take a pause here, a tangent, and ask our question, why is a new covenant necessary? And I think a good text to help us see that is in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Perhaps a favorite passage for many of us, myself included. There in Romans 8, 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul explains why. He says, first of all, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. We do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so according to Paul, what he's saying there is that the law was powerless to do something important. What? Well, it was not able to make us righteous before God. It was weakened by our own sinful nature, our flesh. And that means because of our sinful nature, it is not possible to achieve eternal blessing from God by our own efforts, by our own striving, trying to fulfill God's law and commandments. We cannot. Also, the law of Moses could not fully get rid of the condemnation that we all rightly deserve for our disobedience against God and his law. And so God did something that we could not do with the law. He sent his own son who assumed our own human nature and took the condemnation that we deserved. And that was dished out on Jesus on the cross. He took the full condemnation that we deserved so that we might receive the promised blessing. And in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, Paul describes that same reality in this way. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive what? The promise of the Spirit. So apart from the grace of God, we have to consider that the Old Testament, the uh, rather the Mosaic law that was written on stone, that law alone left us all under the curse of God, judgment and condemnation. And that's why Christ came to redeem us from that curse and then consummate the old covenant of grace that God had made to Abraham. How? By establishing this new covenant. And in reality, the new covenant is actually the fulfillment of God's ancient old promises that he had made long ago to Abraham and to his offspring, like in Genesis 12, 3, that all in you, sorry, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of the Gentiles would be blessed through Abraham's seed. And that's exactly what we see happening here in this text 
in Acts with the outpouring of the Spirit, the fulfillment of that promise of a better covenant enacted upon better promises. And part of the result of this new covenant was the reaping of the first fruits of new life in these believers that were gathered there that day. And that's another connection that we can tie to the Jewish day of Pentecost, which was the celebration of the harvest of the first fruits. And so here we see that the church was spiritually reaping the first fruits produced by the Holy Spirit of God within them. Now, as we go back to the passage, uh, where do we find the disciples on the day of Pentecost? Well, it says that they were in one place. And we know from the passage just prior uh, that they had been waiting together prayerfully for 10 days after Jesus' ascension, waiting for the gift of the Spirit in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus told them, wait, wait for the promise of the Father to come. And that's what they did. And they were prayerfully waiting upon God together, preparing themselves for that coming harvest. Now, as we look at verses 2 to 3 in the text, how did the Holy Spirit come upon them? What are some descriptive words that we find there? Well, first we see, it says, Suddenly a sound came from heaven. So what's described here is something supernatural. And not like other winds, right? Winds typically, how do they come? They come from horizontal uh, location, right? Either from the east or the west or the north or the south. They don't come from heaven, from above, downward. And they don't typically come very suddenly, but they kind of grow and build up. And so this wind, this sound that came upon them was not something natural. It was supernatural. Other descriptions that we find here, it says it's like the blowing of a violent, forcible wind. This was not silent. It was something obvious and inexplicable by uh, natural uh, explanations. We also find that he came and filled the whole house. And that is important. It's symbolic language there of God's presence prior in the Old Testament, when God would come and fill the tabernacle and the temple. We also see that he came and uh, separated tongues like fire. And tongues symbolically speaks or is pointing to the reality that they would be here soon speaking in other languages, tongues. And then lastly, we find that fire rested upon each one of them, symbolically representing the presence of God when he appeared on Mount Sinai and the pillar of fire as well in the tabernacle. And so these details that Luke is giving us here are intentional. He's trying to show us some connections with a few really big, important events in the Old Testament. So the first one I'd like to call our attention to is in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. It was the beginning Uh, there in the very beginning of God's creation. But here, in the day of Pentecost, we find the beginning of God's new creation and the Spirit coming. So the first time that we meet the person of the Holy Trinity is in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 to 2. You'd like to turn there, you can find that or just listen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, what we also find in the day of Pentecost that we read in Acts is the Spirit came to sit or hover upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. This was a new creation that God was beginning in his church. As we confessed earlier, right, in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. And it was in the beginning by the perfecting agency of the Holy Spirit. And through the Son that God the Father made all things good. The Spirit, therefore, is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. He was there in the beginning at the first creation, and here he is at the new creation, at his very beginning, breathing new life into the works of God here in the church. Now, another passage that's parallel to this is Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20, where we find that God was forming his people, Israel, at Mount Sinai. And the connection is that here on the day of Pentecost, God is forming the new people of God. So there in Exodus at Mount Sinai, the text says, And it came to pass on the third day when morning came that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud over the mountain and such a loud sound of a trumpet that it shook all the people who were there, the camp. So Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stayed at the foot of the mountain. The whole Mount Sinai smoked because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke rose like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. The sound of the trumpet increased more and more. Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai. Then the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So we see a lot of connections here uh, with the day of Pentecost, right? The loud noises, the descending with fire as well. Uh, again, this is a clear connection showing us that, that so too on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were being established here as God's new covenant people, the church. Now the third uh, parallel passage is in Exodus 40, verses 24 to 28. And that's where we find God coming and filling the tabernacle, or, uh, which would later be the temple as well. And so it was a symbolic of God's presence among his people. And so too, on the day of Pentecost, we find that here is God coming and filling his new temple, the church, right? And so Exodus says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud was above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in all their journeys, when the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, the Israelites set out. But if the cloud didn't lift, they didn't get going until the next day. For in all his journeys, the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and by night there was fire there in the sight of all of the house of Israel." Uh, now, again, we find here this clear connection to the Jewish temple um, and, or the tabernacle. And that will actually be a running theme in the book of Acts from chapters 2 to 7, that the church of God is the new temple uh, that, has, that is replacing the old Israelite uh, temple there in Jerusalem. And there are a lot of connections there that we could draw out, but we'd spend a lot of time doing so. 
I want to ask next, the next question after considering those three parallel events in the Old Testament. What is Luke, the author here, what is he trying to show us? What is he trying to demonstrate? This, that Jesus is the better Moses who has in his ascension ascended to Mount Zion in celestial Mount Zion to the Lord at his right hand to give us the better gift than the law, which is the Holy Spirit in our hearts and to establish a better sanctuary than the stone temple of Israel, the church, which is God's new temple people. And so this is God's new creation beginning here, his new people being established and his new dwelling place, the church. Now, who were filled uh, with the Holy Spirit? We can see that in verse four. Who were the ones that were filled? Well, all the apostles and the 120 disciples that were present. We find the 120 a bit earlier in chapter one. And that included men and women, old and young. Now, a true church evidences the infilling or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with the proclamation of the pure gospel, the administration of the sacraments and fraternal love, uh, which also at times demonstrates itself in the hard love of church discipline. Wherever those marks are found, you will find a true church. And wherever that true church is, you will find God's new creation, God's new people, God's new temple. Uh, Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too were being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is that great reality that God was beginning to form and create there on the day of Pentecost by filling up all who were dwelling there in that place. What was the results of this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this filling of them in verse 4? We see that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, if we look at verses 6 through 11, in what other tongues did they speak? Well, in verse 6, we hear, it says, each one heard their own language being spoken. And verse 8 says, each of us hears them in our own native language. Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, this is important to note here that this gift of tongues at the day of Pentecost was not an angelic language, nor was it incomprehensible languages like Babel, but rather they were enabled to speak real, actual languages of that current day or different dialects fluently, right? Without, without effort of trying to learn another language, immediately their tongues were loosed and they had fluency in those other languages. So if that happened today, it would look like a people randomly and suddenly speaking all different kinds of languages of the world, like Spanish, Mandarin, French, German, Japanese, and Dutch, and etc., right? Um, that's what was happening. Not uh, a random, uh, unintelligible uh, kind of language, sadly, that a lot of uh, charismatic or Pentecostal churches today uh, misinterpret this understanding of the gift of tongues and its significance here. 
And one other massive, big uh, significance of what's happening in this text ties to another Old Testament event. And this here is the reversal of something that happened long ago in Genesis 11, namely the curse that God gave upon humanity at the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, Genesis 11, 6 through 9, the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, that is in pride, uh, try to ascend to be like God, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so what we find is that here at the day of Pentecost, God, by the work of the Spirit, is reversing that curse. Uh, what does that mean? Well, he's here at this new creation, this new people being formed, this new temple. The Spirit is reuniting humans from all different cultures and ethnicities that speak different languages around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that day, they saw it happening right before their eyes. They heard it. God's Spirit was reaching out and uniting people from different tribes, tongues, and languages from all over the earth, being brought together in unity by the gospel. And this reminds us, as well as just a point of practical application, the importance of unity in the church of Christ. And this should be an emphasis, and it is, thankfully, an emphasis in our own church, that uh, we should not and must not let any cultural differences or language barriers separate us from one another in Christ. We should make all effort uh, to reach across such barriers and pull one another together uh, that we might find that unity that we have in Christ. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, we confessed as well earlier that the Spirit is given to each of us. Why? Well, it says, so that through true faith, the Spirit makes us share in Christ and all his benefits, comforts us, and will remain with us forever. So all of those benefits that the Catechism is speaking of there refer to Christ's, his blood and his righteousness, the virtue of what he has accomplished for us and the indestructible life that we now are tied to by having faith in Jesus. But the Spirit also gives us the benefit of each other in communion, in fellowship. Right? We are gifts from the Spirit to and for one another. And he makes us part of this large spiritual family of God where we are taken care of, where we care for one another, and we grow up together in maturity. And so we see the beauty of what God was beginning to do and is still doing today in his church by the power of the Spirit, uniting and building up his people. But how did the people react watching that day? Verses 12 to 13, what were some of the responses? Bewilderment, utterly amazed, perplexed. They're inquisitive, asking all questions, and also accusatory, right? They had too much wine. They searched for a reasonable explanation for this extraordinary event. Uh, and that is why what follows in the story of Acts is so important. Uh, because they didn't just speak in these different tongues and languages, but instead we find that Peter will soon stand up on that very day to preach the good news. 
And he gives this clear exposition of God's word from the Old Testament to explain what was happening and how it was a fulfillment of prophecies of old. And apart from that clear explanation of God's word, we can assume that the event would probably not have had a massive effect. People would have gone home believing their own explanation, uh, their own way that they tried to excuse it in their minds. Uh, They're just drunk or crazy. But once Peter preached the clear explanation of what was happening, expositing the Old Testament scriptures, they had to deal with that, the preaching of God's word and the clarity of it. And so we'll end with this question. What are some takeaways for us in this story, some application? Well, we've seen that the church is the new creation, the new people of God, and the new temple of God. Therefore, we are to unite ourselves with her, with God's new people, with his church, with this new creation, and seek all the more the fullness of the Holy Spirit through prayer. Uh, should we expect a similar experience as they did on that day? No, no, we should not, because that event was unique in redemptive history. In the story of the Bible, it was a very unique event, much like the cross of Christ one time. The resurrection of Christ, one singular event not to be repeated. The ascension of Christ, one singular event not to be repeated. As well, the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so the promise here is a bit different, but the promise is still for us. As Peter declared that day, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. And so... Uh, we, we should desire more and more to receive by faith uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the filling of the Holy Spirit today does not result in the extraordinary gift of speaking in tongues, which was a unique uh, gift important to that specific time in the life of the church as it was uh, expanding rapidly and reaching the nations. But rather, the infilling of the Spirit today results in the greater gifts that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians, the gifts of faith, hope, and love. And in addition, like the disciples who in this passage were enabled to speak the wonders of God, the gospel, in boldness and in love to their neighbors that were there that day, we should also ask and hope that the Spirit will enable us to speak the truth in love the gospel to our neighbors with boldness also filled with the spirit and so we should all seek such fullness of the spirit in prayer uh, just as we are trying to do also with our spanish language ministry we should try our best to speak the gospel to our neighbors in their own native tongues their languages if possible in that way showing the world what god is doing through his holy spirit and continues to do uniting one people under one Lord, one Savior, one Father, with one Spirit, one baptism, right? This is the great work that God has begun, that he began there, the day of Pentecost, and continues to do. And as we considered earlier uh, this morning, the gates of hell shall not prevail against this church that Christ has established and is building upon the rock-solid foundation of his righteousness and obedience for us. Amen. Let's pray.